0: When Jesus steps in. So great to be with all of you this morning. We started this short three-week series. Uh, Last week, it builds around three three moments that John describes in the fourth book of our New Testament when Jesus appeared to his disciples after he rose from the dead. Last week, we looked at when Jesus steps into our fears. Next week, we'll look at when Jesus steps into our failures. But today, when Jesus steps into our doubts, Our doubts. And we pick it up in John chapter 20 and verse 24. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Didymus meant twin. Uh, He must have had a sibling uh, that we don't know anything about, who was a twin. But Thomas, also known as Didymus, was one of the twelve. He was one of the twelve disciples. He was one of the inner circle with Jesus. But he was not with the disciples. When Jesus came, that's that moment, the evening of Resurrection Day that we looked at last week when they were behind locked doors. Judas had already committed suicide and Thomas was not there, but the other 10 disciples were and Jesus appeared to them in his resurrection form for the first time. And uh, so verse 25 says, the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. I mean, we actually saw him. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. So this is where we get the moniker Doubting Thomas. This this will turn out to be only a one-dimensional way of looking at Thomas, but this is where he gets that Doubting Thomas label. And he uses the argument i remember growing up with when i was a kid i I, I served jesus when i was a young teenager and and i tried to share with my friends but you know i always hear it all the time especially in the late 1960s you know i'll only believe it if i see it and this is thomas he said he said you know unless i can see it i'm not going to believe it until i went to college and attended freshman physics So just give me a moment and edit this out if you need to. But in freshman physics, um, I learned about Einstein's theory of relativity and things aren't quite as easy as I only believe it if I can see it, if I can picture it. Did you realize that the theory of relativity says that the faster an object goes, the more time. Time actually slows down. And the farther an object is from a massive body like the earth, the more time speeds up. And that's not a bunch of hocus-pocus. In fact, the GPS in your phone when you drive would not work unless they accounted for the fact that the satellite that the signal bounces off of uh, is going so fast that time's slowing down and yet it's so much farther above the surface of the earth than we are that time speeds up and those two changes aren't equal. So literally, your phone adjusts for relativistic effects. And then, I studied quantum mechanics, if I wasn't already had my mind blown. And when you go to subatomic particles, you're not talking about specific locations with specific momentum. I mean, you are talking about, I always hated this because I couldn't ever visualize it. You're talking about mathematical probability spaces. And the fact that something that at one point looks like a point, Just the act of observing it makes it act like a wave. And if it looks like a wave, the act of observing it makes it look like a point. In other words, there's nothing certainty. There's just probability and observer-dependent reality. I mean, and and I was going crazy because I I need to visualize things, you know, to feel like I've understood them. And it just defied me that I couldn't visualize this stuff. And so there went, I won't believe it until I can see it that kind of got thrown out. And now some even aspects of postmodern thinking actually give us room to say, you know, that's pretty shallow thinking that I won't believe anything I can't see. I mean, that's not reality. But it was reality for Thomas at this moment. And Thomas in many ways is just like us. But we need to understand that that Thomas wasn't just a doubter. And this is where I really see a little Thomas inside of me, because it all starts out, first of all, um, with Thomas the hero, believe it or not. There are four things that we know Thomas said in his life that are recorded in the Bible. John records them all here in the Gospel of John. And the first time, the first time we find Thomas to be a hero, not a doubter, a hero. He... He's in this discussion with his disciples. And just a few weeks before Jesus is crucified, Jesus said, I want to go back to Judea and Jerusalem. And the disciples are saying, like, like, Jesus, no, you're kidding me. I mean, they tried to kill you last time you went there. And you want to go back there? And so everybody's trying to talk Jesus out of it, except Thomas. And in chapter 11, verse 16, then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, he speaks out. And he says, let's, let's go with him. Let's us also go. Why? That we may die with him. This doesn't sound like a doubter. Thomas was all in. He was all in for this. He said, if we even have to die, let's, let's go. It turns out this is kind of a prophetic statement because like some of the other disciples, many years later, Thomas would die for the gospel. He takes the gospel to India he preaches Jesus there. The church of Jesus Christ is still there to this day in parts of India. My wife Sandy and I have been to Chennai, and to the place where they memorialize Thomas' death. Here is a picture by Peter Paul Rubens, painted, fam- famous picture painted in the early 1600s, uh, entitled The Martyrdom of St. Thomas, where we're told he was speared to death because he would not renounce Christ. I mean, Paul, Thomas says t- to the disciples, Let's go with Jesus back to Jerusalem so we can at least die with him. He was all in. And then, three chapters later, we find Thomas the inquirer. Not just the hero, but the inquirer. The guy who wanted to learn more about truth. The guy who was, who was thoughtful, but eager and hungry to understand Jesus and understand what he was coming to do. And I hope that's a part of all of our lives as well. And they are around the Last Supper, the night before table, the night before Jesus is crucified. And Jesus is saying to them, let not your hearts be troubled. For I'm going to go, but I'm going to go to prepare a place for you. One English translation says, I'm going to go to build a mansion for you. And I'm going to come back, because if I go there to prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back and take me to be where I am. And there's silence around the table. And they're going, what on earth is he talking about? And who's the first? It turns out three disciples will end up pushing back and asking questions. Guess who the first one is? Thomas. And Thomas says in verse 5, Lord, Lord, to be really honest with you, we don't know the way. Uh, we We don't know where you're going so that we can even know the way. And I love that Thomas was hungry to understand because he set Jesus up for the greatest statement of Jesus' self-identification that I think Jesus gives anywhere in Scripture. Thomas is saying, Lord, we don't know the way. And Jesus said, I'm the way. Just stay close to me and you'll be on God's way for you. I'm the way and I'm the truth and I'm the life he didn't know Jesus would rise from the dead of course but I'm the life no one no man no one comes to our heavenly father except through me i'm so glad thomas asked that question i want us as a church by the way to be a safe place for people to ask questions honest questions i've talked to too many people who grew up in church and they said, I had some questions. I was just, I just couldn't put things together in my head. I was maybe doubting some things. But every time I asked questions, I was told to keep my mouth shut and just behave. And, and, and that has pushed many, many young people away from the Lord. I see Richard Hammer back here. I'm so grateful for Richard for years, having a class. where in his class, he'll say, okay, any question, any que- It's a safe place to ask any question.'" At 9 o'clock this morning, J.T. Ray gathered with a whole group of middle and high school students, and he always starts like, okay, what are your questions today? I mean, we need to be a place where it's safe to be inquirers. We're all working through this. And, and this was Thomas, Thomas the hero, Thomas the inquirer, but something happens And now in chapter 20, after Jesus has died and rose again, we find Thomas the doubter. From hero to inquirer to doubter. So let's read again, verse 25 of John 20. So the other disciples, they said to Thomas, who wasn't there that resurrection night in the room, we've seen the Lord. But, But he said to them, Thomas said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And you go, like, what happened? Like, from hero to inquirer, nothing wrong with either of those things. I hope that's part of all of our lives. We're all in, and we're hungry to learn more of the truth. Something happened. Some people have suggested that as Thomas watched Jesus slowly die on that cross, That something inside of him just died too. That just, all his hopes. I mean, he was just shattered, apparently. Like, this is not the way it was supposed to turn out. This didn't fit the script. This didn't fit his expectations. God, you seem to be doing something that I didn't even see coming. And it's like, it's like when your hope is just shattered. It's like just something dies inside of you. And, and that may have happened with him and and in that sense that look Thomas you know Thomas had traveled with Jesus for almost two years he watched his miracles he was he was all in and and he saw miracles and a lot of things but but to actually now have Jesus die I mean it's like, Lord, everything I thought I believed seems to be falling apart right now And he couldn't put it together. Or or, or, or the miracles. You know, he saw the miracles. He he didn't have trouble with Jesus' miracles. He was all in. He was was there. But maybe for Thomas, I mean, there's miracles, but then there's resurrection. (laughs) And maybe that was just a step too far for Thomas. Just a step too far. And I tell you, that's just like us. I think every one of us at some point, let's be honest, we fought doubt. I mean, everything that we thought we believed now seems to be falling apart, and God doesn't seem to be doing what we think he should be doing, and our our list of unanswered prayers, seemingly unanswered prayers, seems to be growing. Some of us have had hugely traumatic, sometimes our faith starts to deconstruct when we've just been punched in the gut in, in hugely traumatic experiences, and pain we don't know what to do with and where is God and has he forgotten my name sometimes there's a lot of disillusionment with institutions sometimes people especially today are becoming disillusioned with the church whatever they perceive in the church that doesn't meet their expectations and and so your confidence in the head of the church starts to deteriorate and you, you wrestle with real issues about you know I don't think I can trust the church anymore but does that mean I can't trust Jesus either and sometimes it's sometimes it's, it, it's just simply exhaustion. I see this in people's lives. When you're exhausted, when you're burnt out, it's just like, like something starts to deconstruct of faith in your life. It's just harder to believe. It's harder to sense that God's presence is with you. It's just like all of these things happen. And, and I don't know that Thomas was exhausted, but I knew that everything he thought he believed in was shattered when he watched his Lord die on the cross. And probably resurrection was a step too far for him when it came to faith. But I want to tell you there's a way back. There is a way back. We sang it this morning in that second song. There's not a place that your mercy and grace won't find me again. And I believe that if you're really being harassed with doubt today, as I was a number of years ago for a period of two years, I I just believe that there's a way back for every one of us. And here it is. Here was a way back for Thomas. Verse 26 of John 20. A week later, after, after Thomas had just said to his friends, I won't believe it until I can see it. A week later, Jesus' disciples were in the house again. And Thomas was with them this time. And though the doors were locked, Jesus resurrection, resurrected Christ Jesus came and stood among them and he said peace be with you, peace be with you and then the very next thing John says is is that Jesus turns and looks at Thomas it already read his mail what's he going to do doubter at least the other ten got it right you doubter no Instead, Jesus says to Thomas, "Thomas, come here, come here. Would you? no, 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 Thomas, over here, right by me. And he shows him his hands. Then we know that after he's dead on the cross, the Romans had plunged a spear in his side. And I don't know what kind of cloak Jesus might have been wearing, but he pulls it aside. And Thomas, would you put your hand right, right, right in this big spear wound right here? No, no, Thomas, just come close. Now, this was captured in a very paint, famous picture, picture painting by Caravaggio, again in the early 1600s. It's called Doubting Thomas, or often known as The Incredulity of Thomas. And look at that powerful picture. And what's powerful is what you see right in the middle of the picture. You see, of course, Thomas putting his finger into the spear wound in Jesus' side. But what do you see on Thomas's wrist? Wrist. That is the hand of Jesus. That is, in the midst of all of Thomas's doubts, Jesus is pulling him. Jesus is encouraging him. Not to let his doubts keep him distant, but just to come closer to him. Now, Angela Donatio and her father, Hubert Morris from Central Assembly here, have i have just written an about-to-be-published book called Brave Enough to Believe. And I was so touched by the powerful way they depicted this moment in their book. First, they write, first came the invitation. Thomas, come closer. Then came the imperative. Stop doubting and believe. Jesus did end by saying that. I mean, and there's a point where we start to stop doubting and believing. But Jesus doesn't say, Thomas, stop doubting, and then I'll let you get close to me. Before Jesus ever issued a command, he initiated restoration. Jesus didn't withdraw from Thomas. Thank God Jesus didn't withdraw from Thomas, and he doesn't withdraw from us. They go on to write, we are not the sum total of our worst moments. And this was Thomas' worst moment. It wasn't his only moment. But it was his worst moment. But we're more than the sum total of our worst moments or our doubts. They write, we are known, wanted, and loved by the God who created us. No matter what we have done or what has been done to us, when we encounter Jesus, we are invited in. He doesn't want us to wait until we've figured it all out to move towards him. And then we have the fourth and last recorded words of Thomas in the Bible. Verse 28, the next verse, Thomas said to him, Jesus, my Lord and my God. And I'm praying that today you will have a my Lord and my God moment with the God who said, you may not figure it all out, but will you come close? So I want you to stay open to finding faith. I want you to stay open to finding faith this morning. I think that's going to mean uh, just a few closing things. Number one, and I don't mean to be trite by this, but I would encourage you to doubt your doubts. Because every doubt you have is based on an assumption that you probably can't prove. I mean... Thomas's doubts were based on the assumption that nobody can rise from the dead. And it turned out he was dead wrong about that. All of your... Th- oh, sorry for the pun. I wish I was clever enough to have thought of that ahead of time. Every doubt, though, has an underlying assumption to it, and those assumptions may be dead wrong. The Marxist scholar... Terry Eagleton, read this. He writes, reason, reason, that's with our minds, reason to be sure doesn't go all the way down for believers, but it doesn't go down for the most sensitive, civilized, non-religious types either. He says, even the famous atheist Richard Dawkins lives more more by faith than by reason. We hold many beliefs that have no unimpeachable rationalization, rational, justification in other words we live by a lot of assumptions we can't prove rationally so Richard Dawkins that that was the case Richard Dawkins the world-famous atheist says the 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 idea that there is a God is so improbable that I am going to live my life on the assumption that he doesn't exist but well, you better make sure that assumption's right. Otherwise, you're risking hell and, or heaven. You're risking all eternity. I, I, want to, I want you to think through your doubts. I want you to think through the assumptions behind your doubts. And if your assumptions are rooted in nothing but disillusionment with churches or pain or trauma or other things, I mean, those things might not be authoritative when it comes to truth. There, Thomas was acting on some assumptions that were not correct. And that it caused him to live in this dimension of doubt. And then in doubting your doubts, I want to encourage you to touch the evidence. Jesus calls Thomas. He said, you come over here. Now, don't just look, touch, touch. And I want to encourage you to touch the evidence. I mean, we can't touch Jesus' body today, but there's a lot of great books out there. A Week Tomorrow, um, Pastor Don... And myself with Dr. Wave Nunley from Central, we're going to Israel. And every day we're gonna see tangible evidence that the record of the Bible is accurate, in spite of what some of your friends may be saying to you. And you remember Dr. Nunley and I, last spring and summer, we did a two and a half-month series called The Case for Truth. And we talked about how science doesn't need to take our faith away. We talked about why we did two Sundays and why the Bible is historically and, and archaeologically accurate. And remember that one that Dr. Nunley did, if you were here back then, uh, where, where he did an entire message. He described the entire identity of Jesus and the entire gospel, and he never used one scripture verse. He only used other evidence from around him. I mean, he recreated the life of Jesus from evidence from outside the Bible. Unbelievable. Although that might not be the right word to use right now. Unbelievable, come to think of it. Maybe amazing would work better at this moment. I'm not doing good with my words today, I'm so sorry. There, I invite you to touch the evidence. There's evidence. I mean, I mean this is not just a, a fantasy thing. Uh, this Christian faith is rooted in real history. And God entering space and time and leaving his imprint here. Part of that imprint is you and me, alive in him, but a lot of other imprints. One of my favorite quotes, some of you have heard me quote this before, Tim Keller in his book, The Reason for God. Christians don't claim that their faith gives them absolute knowledge of reality, but they believe that the Christian account of things, like creation and fall and redemption and restoration, the Christian account of things, makes the most sense of the world. And so I, I ask you, he writes, to put on Christianity like a pair of spectacles and look at the world with it and see what power it has to explain what we know and see. But I do want to encourage you, if you're going to touch the evidence, do it with an honest heart, an honest heart. There's something we call confirmation bias, and we Christians get accused of that. Like, like we only look for things that verify what we already believe in the first place. But you know what? Most of the non-Christian friends in my life are also guilty of confirmation bias because it's so hard to be honest with our heart. That's why the German theologian Wolfhard P- Pannenberg writes, the evidence for Jesus' resurrection is so strong that nobody would question it except for two things. First, it is a very unusual event. I could understand people questioning it for that reason. And second... If you believe it happened, you have to change the way you live. Yeah, that's the problem. It's hard to be objective. But I invite you with an honest heart. If you're still in are if, st- if you're still not sure what to do with Jesus and all of, all of this, I encourage you to touch the evidence, but be careful. You're not coming to conclusions that simply justify your favorite sin. Or living for yourself. encourage you to doubt your doubts and to touch the evidence. That's what Thomas had to do. He had to face the fact the assumptions behind some of his doubts were wrong. And he literally touched the evidence. No matter what that would mean for him. And then he experienced a my Lord and my God moment. And I want to invite you to that today. A my lord and my god moment he touched he touched jesus side he touched his hands and his only response was my lord and my god and he served jesus for the rest of his life when i dealt with doubt i was a teenager i wanted to believe all this confirmation bias was not working in my favor <sighs> I wanted to believe all this. I'd seen Jesus transform people. I'd seen people who should have been dead and they were supernaturally healed. I mean, I, I didn't have questions that way, but I was haunted with doubt for two years. I just, how I remember thinking things like, oh, how, I mean, how could Jesus have possibly risen from the dead? How can I believe that? How do I know all this stuff isn't made up? And it actually, my story was was, because it wasn't so much an intellectual issue for me, But I was just plagued with doubt. And my story was just Jesus calling me closer. And I said, Jesus, I'm desperate to know because I don't want to live my life pretending this is all right when it's not. I don't want to be a hypocrite. If you're not real, I I don't want to pretend like you are. And, um, And I just was really honest with God and I was, to be honest, desperate that Jesus would reveal himself to me. And I had a few moments I thought... Maybe the Lord had touched my life, but one night, one night the Lord, in his presence, just came close to me. It was just like God, Jesus, took me by the wrist, like you saw in that picture. and He just pulled me. And he didn't rebuke me for all my doubts and questions, but he pulled me. He pulled me right up by his heart and made himself real to me. And I woke up that next morning, and there was like a song in my heart a lightness. The oppression was gone. And from that day on, the doubts disappeared. And and sometimes, sometimes, it's those moments, I, I want you to doubt your doubts. I want you to do the intellectual work of that. I want you to touch the evidence. But I want you, before everything's settled, will you just give Jesus a chance? Will you just let Jesus grab you by the arm and say, no, no. Yeah, you know, I know all the stuff that's going on inside of your head, but just just come closer. Just come closer to me. watch what he'll do. And so Jesus closed that moment by saying, "Because you have seen me, you have believed, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I used to think that was kind of a rebuke of people who felt like they needed evidence. No, that's not what he's saying. He's just saying, Thomas, you know I haven't ascended to heaven yet. And you and your friends, you actually get to see me and touch me in my resurrected form. Most of the millions of people who will follow me in the days ahead won't get to see me and touch me like you are. But blessed, blessed are they. They don't get to see me quite like you do and touch me. But I'm going to make myself real to them. That's what he did in my life when I was 16 years old. That's what he can do in your life. So I'd like to invite you to stand with me.